And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Wednesday. It's the Hump Day edition show of, uh, well, The Real Investment Advice Show right here. Of course, Brent Clanton joining me this morning. Danny Ratliff will be rolling in here momentarily to talk about gas tax holidays. Uh, the war on oil companies and just basically a whole bunch of other stuff today. So we got a we, we got a lot to get into. So hang around this morning, though, kind of right out of the gate. Unfortunately, good news was yesterday markets kind of rallied. I gotten pretty oversold on the the sell off last week. Of course, a lot of repositioning on Friday because of the massive options expiration that we had. And so we had a decent rally yesterday after a long extended holiday weekend. Markets were up about 2.5% yesterday. Good rally coming out of the gates this morning. Eh, not so, not so good this morning. Futures are down about 350 points. Now, the good news there is, is that on the Dow, um, those futures were down about 500 earlier this morning. So they are recovering here a bit. Same thing for the NASDAQ, which is still down fairly sharply. Um, uh, S&P as well look to open down over 1% this morning. Now, that's not terrible. Um, given that we had a 2% plus rally yesterday, bit of a give back today. But unfortunately, the thing is we just can't really string together a couple of days uh, that we need. Um, so interestingly enough though, this morning, you know, oil prices continue to be under pressure. And we're gonna talk more about what's going on with the oil industry and, and oil prices, et cetera. But oil prices down to 104 this morning out of the gate, coming down about another 4%, almost 5% this morning. Of course, that led to that drop in gasoline that you saw at the pump over the weekend down back below $5 on a national average. So again, consumers getting a little bit of relief here, um, which is you know obviously much needed. Um, but this comes at a time where, as we talked about before, it's not just the inflation problem, right? It's not just prices going up that's the problem. It's also interest rates going up as well. It's been the largest increase in mortgage in the, in the rate of increases in mortgages that we've seen at pretty much any other point in recent history. So very sharp spike in interest rates, and that's leading to um, you know a big decline in home, home ownership, right? Home affordability was a problem before the spike in interest rates because prices were too high. Now prices are coming down, but you can't afford the mortgage because interest rates have gone up. And this is something we'll talk about with this morning with Danny because millennials have a new reason why they can't afford a house and it's not what you think. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that this morning. So it's always somebody else's fault, by the way. Um, but we'll get into that this morning. But the other side of this is that credit card interest rates with the Fed hiking interest rates, right, on the short end of the curve. Now remember, credit cards are variable rate credit, uh, variable rate debt, I should say. And, and so that's more affected by what happens on the short end of the yield curve spectrum. So on the one year, two year, three year interest rates, that's what affects more of your credit cards and, and those credit card interest rates because credit cards don't loan you money for you know, 10 or 20 years. They, they lend you money and they want you to pay it back quickly so they can roll it over. Uh, that's why they charge you a high interest rate. Um, to get, try to get you to pay it off. Um, but the, the point here is, is that those rates are going up. Now, all of a sudden, we've got a sharp increase in debt service. 
at a time where you have a very sharp increase in the amount of debt of leverage that's being taken on the, on on by households now when you talk about this immediately somebody will trot out a chart that shows the average or that'll show the debt to household disposable income ratio and it's a, it's a, it's dropped a lot over recent uh, over the last few years and that's a very misleading chart because that household debt income ratio uh, analysis is heavily skewed by those in the top 10% of income earners that A, have very little debt and B, very high incomes. And, and so that skews the whole analysis. What you have to do is you have to strip out that top 10, 20% of income earners, set them off and look at the bottom 80% that makes up the big bulk of, of the average of America, right? I mean, that's your middle class, lower class, all those people thrown in. Once you look at those household debt to income ratios, very different story for those families. And, and again, the difference is, and why this is important, is that those in the upper echelon of income earners, they inflation really doesn't affect them. You know, inflation has gone up, prices have gone up, but they still spend pretty much just like they were spending before. Yeah, it's eat up more of their discretionary income, but they really have so much discretionary income, it doesn't matter to them whether the cost of filling up their G4 was $100,000 or $150,000. It doesn't, you know, whatever the number is. I don't personally have a G4 to fill up, so I don't know what it costs, but I'm sure it's a lot. And, you know, it doesn't really change the dynamic for them. So inflation really doesn't affect those top 10% of income earners. But for the bottom 80% of income earners that pretty much drive the overall economy, this is the, this is the bulk of America that spends virtually 100% of their income every month just making ends meet. Changes in prices mean a lot to how and where they consume. And so change, when interest rates go up and credit card payments go up, that means more money comes out of the household income to pay off debt versus going out to buy groceries, gas, those type of things. So it's a very different story for that bottom 80% of America. But that bottom 80% of America is what drives the majority of economic growth because, again, they spend everything they have coming in. Those at the top end, they, they're still mostly savers. Uh, they're spending their income, yes, and they're spending more of their income because of inflationary prices, but that really doesn't affect their lifestyle that much, and they're still saving a lot of money. So that's the very big difference between those two. Um, and, and again, you know, when you want to change economic growth, those at the top, they pretty much have everything they want. So it's, they're not going to go out and create, if you send them a $1,500 uh, check, they're going to save it because they've already bought whatever else they wanted. That's, and that's why the 80% means so much. So we talk about this. But, and this is why, and, and we'll get into this morning a little bit more, but you know, President Biden now calling for Congress to suspend the federal gas tax. It's about 18 cents a gallon on average around the country. That's money that goes to supposedly, of course, if you live in Houston and we have ongoing potholes, um, it's supposed to be for road repair, but <laughs> I'm not sure it actually gets there. Uh, but that's the 18 cents. So we're talking about lowering 18 cents, you know, a gallon, giving you a gas tax holiday. Sounds great, right? I'm going to go from $5 to $5 <laughs> to $4 and, you know, 82 cents. And, and that sounds great on the surface. Hey, I'm going to give you 18 cents. And that's pretty much a way to try to get some votes, but it doesn't really help the household that much. Gas is still expensive, even after 18 cents on the gallon. 
but more importantly, does it change the dynamic? Will, it, will a gas tax holiday actually lead to a change of gas prices at the pumps? And this is the fallacy that happens with all these type of government programs. They sound great on the surface, but as we'll talk about this morning, does it really make a change when we get to the pump? And this also kind of goes to the heart of all these conversations, talking about oil prices dropping here, you know, um, in, and, you know, the vilification of oil companies, right? We've been talking about, you know, the administration has been blaming oil companies for high oil prices and how they're, how they're gouging the American citizen, right? It's terrible. But is it really the story and we kind of talked about this yesterday in, in a different manner you know we get these stories out of out of government that you know come through our social media and they tell us that this is the way things are right we talked about yesterday that evs really aren't all that friendly economically they're really not any different than an, than an ice an internal combustion engine vehicle in terms of the carbon footprint and we talked about those differences yesterday posted a link to a video for that today we'll talk a little bit more about this fallacy of record corporate profits for oil companies don't go away. Get, get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Shooting with a Nerf gun. Welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Rowland joining me. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, doing great. Thank you. How are awesome. you? Good, good. Uh, a couple of things this morning to get into, as I was just uh, alluding to a second ago, the Biden administration is now proposing a gas tax holiday. Woohoo! 18 cents a gallon. Now, the problem is, of course, is that you're taking away revenue that goes, you know, one of the revenue sources that go to the government, supposedly for road repair. I'm not sure that actually gets there, considering, as I said, the, the roads in Houston, <laughs> but <laughs> supposed to happen. Um, anyway, but does that really make a difference to things? And, and, you know, it's interesting because everybody looks at these oil companies and they say, well, you know, it's ExxonMobil, Chevron yesterday, a very interesting Chevron sent a very, you know, kind of stern letter to the Biden administration and talking about the, it's, it's the administration's fault for, you know, causing these high oil prices now because of the restriction of leases, the cancellation of the XL pipeline, making it very difficult to get permitting, uh, making it very difficult to drill. Of course, um, the administration turned Wall Street against oil companies in this move for ESG investing in climate change and, and, and pushed companies like BlackRock as an example, who has been a 
you know, a big supporter of the administration because, well, pretty much they're the de facto go-to for the Federal Reserve whenever the Federal Reserve wants to do something like buy back junk bond ETFs, which, you know, BlackRock executes the trades for the Federal Reserve and then charges them like one and a quarter percent fees to do that. So BlackRock makes just, you know, tons of money. So, of course, they're very supportive of the administration and you know, they were attacking the oil gas industry, encouraging the pension funds that they work with to divest themselves of oil and gas investments, which reduces capital flows for U.S. companies. We talked about this the other day on the show. And that's what's led to this dearth of drilling. And more importantly, when you talk about building a refinery, right, you want to have more oil so we can bring down gas prices. You got to have a refinery for that. And you know, it takes 10 to 15 years of investment and production in order to recoup that initial investment, which is billions of dollars. And so if I don't have a really clear window 10 to 15 years out that I'm not going to be under constant attack by an administration, I'm not going to I'm not going to invest the capital. And that's what's led us to this kind of crisis that we have right now in terms of oil and gas production and supply. And just don't forget it was just a little over a decade ago. In 2008, we were talking about peak oil, right? We're going to run out of oil. We're all going to die. World was going to come to an end. Oil prices were about where they are now. No, they're higher, $147 a barrel. Yeah. I think really topped off. Yep. And um, so, you know, that's, you know, that's what was going on back then. And then, of course, we invented this miracle of fracking. And within just a few years, we're a net exporter of oil. We got more oil than we know what to do with. And then now we've completely reversed that whole process by eliminating that excess. So the, the, the point here is this, is that we can blame the oil companies. But all they do is they drill, they deliver the product, ultimately the gasoline, to the retail store, right? The gas, the oil companies, ExxonMobil doesn't set the price of gas at the gas station, right? That's the guy that owns the gas station. He's setting the price, and he's setting that price relative to what his neighbor's charging across the street. If you go to any street corner, it's like the nexus of the universe. There's gas stations on both sides of the street corner, right? And those prices are always relatively the same, and depending on where you are in the city depends on what price you're paying per gallon of gas. But you don't see one guy charging, you know, five fifty a gallon and the guy across the street charging four eighty five. Right. You just don't see that because they're competing with each other and they want your price. So they there's the supply demand game going on at that level. So if I strip out 18 cents in taxes, that's great. That's going to give the retailer 18 cents more in profit that he's going to keep. But it's not really going to change the dynamic of oil prices because, again, they're competing on price with each other. So, yeah, you may see if they repeal the gas tax right for a day or even a month, you might see gas prices drop at the prompt for the first couple of days or two or maybe even a week, but they're going to start to slowly creep back up because of supply and demand, right? It's just, it's just the, the way retail works. So it's a great thing in theory, but as with all things coming out of government, they are very short-lived in reality, and just it's just the way the economy works. It's about supply and demand. More demand there is for a limited supply, prices are going to go up, vice versa. And I thought this was interesting because this brings us up to a point that we're going to get into a little bit more today on housing as well, because it's the same dynamic playing in housing <laughs> that I think is funny. But just recently, the, uh, the administration is blaming oil companies, right, for all these problems. And one of the things that we hear a lot is like, well, we need to charge a windfall profits tax. And Brent, I have a couple of charts over here. 
We're going to have to charge a windfall profits tax because it's unfair that these oil companies are making so much profit, right? They're making record profits. And, you know, they've got these record profit margins. So, you know, and they're just gouging Americans. Why can't they give up some of that profit margin, right? And, and, and lower the barrel of oil for, for people so they get more money. And so I thought I'd just do a quick analysis, and I did this yesterday. I, I said, well, pff, let's go take a look at ExxonMobil. They're probably one of the, they're the largest, one of the largest integrated oil driller refiners. They do everything, right? They drill, they explore, they refine, send gas. So it's, it's a great example, I think, of, of what the administration is talking about, right? And when they go out to attack people, they don't attack companies like Enterprise Product Partners, right? They, 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 they go after ExxonMobil, right? They go after Chevron. They go after these guys. And so I just thought it was interesting. I pulled a chart of, and it's a little bit hard to see, and I apologize, but if you're watching our video online right now, you can, you can see it. If you're driving, don't try to do this. I'll explain the chart. <laughs> but I pulled a 20-year, uh, going back about 20, 20 years or so, pulling the gross Margin. This is the gross profit margin of what ExxonMobil makes. Now, interestingly enough, if we go back to December of 2001, now where we were in December of 2001, uh, Danny, just as a recall here, what was the price per barrel of oil in 2000? Do you remember? No, I do not. It's $20 a barrel. Wow. $20 a barrel for oil. And back then we looked at a profit margin that was running about 75% for ExxonMobil. So they were making a lot of money back then on profits, gross margins. Since then, because the cost of labor and things have gone up over time, the cost of drilling, et cetera, profit margins shrink because of the fact that we're costing more. And this is the thing that the administration misses when they go after these oil companies. They say, record profit margins. It's not that simple. It's not that this, the price of oil goes up. And all of a sudden, the the margin is rising in tandem with oil with oil prices, because as oil prices go up, what has happened over the last couple of years in terms of wages? They've gone up, right? We we had this whole big shutdown in the economy, wages collapsed, and wages have been rising very sharply because of a shortage of labor. So wages have gone up. The cost of commodities, the input cost into drilling for oil, the sand, the mud, the, the cost of labor, the technology, all those type of things that are needed to extract that barrel of oil out of the ground have also gone up. And don't forget that they're also paying for fuel costs to transport oil. Um, you know, it, 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 takes, it, it requires energy to extract oil. So all those prices went up. So when you take a look at the the gross margins of ExxonMobil, they're still barely where they were, you know, basically where they were back in 2000, coming out of the bottom in 2009. And they really haven't grown that much. And, and, and so, okay, well, you know, that's, that's okay. That's gross margin, right? So let's take a look at this from the standpoint of of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So before I pay taxes, right, on my money, right? So I have all this revenue coming in, right? So I'm just making my rent money hand over fist. So let's look at their margin before they pay interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, all that, right? Let's just take raw EBITDA as a, as a margin, 
basically flat. Despite this big surge in oil, yes, it's come up a bit, a little bit, yes, because oil prices have gone up. The barrel of oil of, of, uh, has gone up. And that's not driven, by the way, by ExxonMobil, Chevron, anyway, and anybody else. They don't set the price of oil. They're out there hedging oil. They're out there drilling it. And then as soon as they're drilling it, they're going out into the futures market and they're hedging it. The people that set the price of oil are commodity traders. These are the guys, these are the non-commercial speculators on the NYMEX that are that are bidding on what they expect the price of oil to be. And they're running the price of oil up because prices are rising. So they get more aggressive, pushing prices higher and get more aggressive, which pushes prices higher. And it's just like any other market. It's driven by supply and demand. And in the in the futures market, it's even much more volatile. So as the futures traders are driving these oil prices higher, ExxonMobil's extracting oil and going out and trying to lock in prices for delivery because they've got to deliver that oil. Once they extract it, they've got to ship it and deliver it somewhere. So they've got to go lock in that price and hedge so that they don't get caught shorthanded if prices collapse for one reason or another or they spike through the roof for one reason or the other, right? They've got to hedge that delivery. So there's a big difference between the speculators and these guys that are producing commodity that they've got to deliver the specific price. But it's a fallacy that these record that these oil companies are generating record profit margins. They're not. Yes, they're up. They are making more in earnings. That is correct. Their costs have also gone up just as well. All right, we'll come back. I took all the time from Danny this morning. Now he's upset. He's over here pouting. Hey, it's all good. Millennials are dragging boomers be saying they can't afford homes. Wah. But you won't believe why they can't afford a home. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff really is joining me this morning. Sorry, I got off on a rant. <laughs> Last segment. <laughs> Danny, how are you this morning? Doing great. Thank you. Awesome. So um, millennials are having a problem affording a home. I don't think it's just millennials. I think it's everyone. <laughs> it's everyone. You know, it, it's very interesting because, you know, it's, um, you know, so we're, we sold our house and now we're looking for a rental house. And... And where my wife wants to move is is 
you know, part of Houston that was built really kind of back in the 60s and 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So the houses are a lot smaller. They're, you know, the average house size is, you know, 1,800 to 2,000 square feet, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's very interesting because that's what I grew up in. And, you know, my, our, our, our home, my home that I grew up in was 1,100 square feet, three bedroom, one and a half bath, right, type thing, right? Yeah. Very, just a very modest house. And, you know, this is a house that my parents bought back in the 60s, and it was like $12,000 at the time. And I think that house sold recently for like $200,000. Wow. It, it just, you know, just over time, it's just been growing. But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, it, it's interesting because part of the problem that we have in terms of home ownership and those type of things, I know a lot of millennials are upset and, and, and Gen Zers are upset because they can't afford a home, but the expectations for owning their first home is like, oh, I need a $350,000 home that's, you know, four bedrooms, you know, five and a half bath and a pool in the backyard, right? Yep. And they're upset because they can't afford this three hundred fifty dollars or $400,000 house. But, you know, it's just a function is, is, you know, the, you know, we've done a great job as a society of encouraging people to live well beyond their means and lower rate, lower interest rates provided that ability i could you know because interest rates were three four five percent i could afford a lot bigger house and then we started doing things with mortgages like you know no money down and three percent down fannie mae mortgages and these type of things you know back when my parents were buying a house you had to have 20 percent down <laughs> you know there was no second mortgage to get past mortgage insurance and you know i didn't all that didn't occur until the late 90s and early 2000s of course we know how that turned out you know, in 2007, but we've done a lot of damage to, you know, people's financial net worth over the years by encouraging people to live well beyond their means. Well, that's a, that's the big problem behind all of this back then. Like you mentioned, you had to have the 20% down, you had to have money in the bank. You had to have a track record of success mm -hmm. prior to going in and saying, Hey, you know, everybody can go get a loan. It's just like we talk about student loan debt. When everybody has access to something, it's going to make things more expensive. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to give everybody a home, you get a home, you get a home. Well, what like, happens? It's like Oprah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what happens over time is that we're going to see these prices increase, especially with the easy access to money. And so now we have this issue that many people are having to forego that first home. They're having a rent log, which I could argue is maybe not the worst thing in the world. I mean, we do see from a financial planning perspective that young couples oftentimes get in over their head or you know the average home buyer their average family lives in a home for seven years mm -hmm. and what we find with those first homes that's usually not the case because they get a home they get it in something they want to get into quickly they start having children and all of a sudden it's not big or good enough and well, so you get out now luckily we've been in an environment where prices have been escalating so you're not upside down but we can make an argument that many times after all the money that you put into it you're not any better off Right. Well, the average home price right now is three hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars. I mean, I you know, that it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around that that's the average home price that people are buying. But it's interesting because you know there was a survey out recently talking about millennials and their first home buying you know option. They went and bought a house, and they were very upset. And they said, "Well, why are you upset that you bought a home? Right? Because this is supposed to be an asset for you." And and this is this is the other problem that we've done over the last few years is started telling people their home was an asset, financial asset. It's not. Ask any homeowner. It's an expense. 
It's a liability. Yeah. It's a it's a liability, and and that's what the surveys pointed out was is well nobody told us that we had you know HOA fees and nobody told me that we had to do maintenance on the house and that we that things broke and, and nobody told us about this and so they bought these houses and almost immediately they were hit with ten and twenty thousand dollar expenses because they had to do repairs maintenance upkeep something broke you know, the, the plumbing broke or dishwasher went out, whatever it was, and they were immediately hit with these extra expenses that they weren't counting on. And because they were able to buy this house with really no money down and no ability, and, and, and see, this is the thing about the 20% down payment that we lost. If you can afford to save a 20% down payment to buy a house, that means you you have positive net cash flow. In other words, you're not spending everything you make and so that you have money and savings to meet those oh, those emergencies, right? Those things that happen. And individuals now just don't, you know, when you say, look, if you can just come up with 3% of your mortgage and we'll, we'll get you a mortgage, they don't have any ability to save excess cash. They're spending everything they make and they're barely squeaking into the home. And you know this is a problem when the mortgage changes from four hundred dollars, you know, you know, changes from you know eight hundred dollars a month to a thousand dollars a month, and they say, oh, I can't afford the payment now. That's the problem, right? The the payment should not be a problem if you're buying the right size house and you're and you've got positive net cash flow, et cetera. But but for many people in that instance, I mean, I can remember my first home. I think that uh, you know, put put the money down, did the right thing, yep. and I want to say they came back and moved from like an eight or $900 payment to like 13 or $1,400, which was devastating at that time, yeah. 20 years ago. I mean, that was, that was a lot of money. It was. And especially for somebody who wasn't making a lot of money, it was, it was really, I mean, it was a kick in the gut. Yeah. And so I, I can understand that aspect, but I think that's why we need to be even that much more cautious when we're, we're looking at these things. But, you know, the issue is it's not just the home. It's the financialization of everything. You know, it's, it's you remember a couple of years ago, we were talking on air, like, I can't believe Apple went and they they raised the price of an iPhone to over a thousand bucks. Who's gonna buy this? But they were genius because they created this revenue stream where they said, hey, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay it all now. We're just gonna put you on a monthly payment. Well, what they knew that you're going to have a monthly payment for the rest of your life because everybody always wants a new phone. Right. So now it's not just the mortgage, it's all of these other things that we we have, all of these subscriptions. And so the funny thing is, you know, about you know the the article we were discussing was that they, you know, Baby boomers were telling millennials, well, cut your, your Netflix subscription, right? Uh-huh. Go ahead and cut, stop eating out so much or, or ordering, you know, to-go food or whatever it may be. Uber Eats. And uh, they said, great, we, we'll do that. And in 2,300 years, we'll, we'll be able to afford a home. <laughs> but, but, you know, and, this, and, this, and here's the interesting thing that, you know, about this, too, is that when I bought my first home, my interest rate was 10%. Yeah. That was, that was when I bought my first home. When my dad bought bought their bought their house, right there there was a a you know rates were already moving up, and I think their mortgage rate was around eleven, but that wound up going up to like eighteen percent for a mortgage, right back then. Um, you know, one of the problems of low interest rates is that it encourages people to take on more debt than they should because interest payments are low. One of the things about high interest rates is it makes people be more financially responsible, right? It puts a cap on house prices because at a ten percent mortgage you know, I can't really afford that much of a house based on my income. So it brings housing prices down. It kind of keeps things a little bit more balanced. And, you know, while we all hate high interest rates, right? It was like, oh, high interest rates are terrible. There's actually a benefit to high interest rates because it controls 
what happens with spending and, and can kind of keeps the rest of the system in line economically because interest rates are a function of, of demand as well as inflation and economic growth and those type of things. And, you know, so there's a, you know, one of the problems that we kind of let out of, you know, the genie we let out of the bottle was low interest rates sounded great, right? Because we could afford everything. But now you're seeing the other problem of this, which is it also leads to excessive prices because we keep wanting to buy more and more and more stuff and we have nowhere to go with it. Yeah. So. And high interest rates should keep everyone honest, including the mortgage companies, because yeah. now they're begin becoming more strict again. And it's not where everybody can go get that loan. Now they want to see, oh, what are you going to put down? And I think, you know, we just saw, you know, today, this morning, we were seeing data coming out that uh, mortgage applications actually rose this week. But a big part of it was arms, adjustable yeah. rate mortgages. So people are now trying to figure out ways that they can afford these homes still, uh, just having to do it a much different way than a 30 year yeah. note. Right. And then look, and, and the advantage is, is the you're going to buy a house right now, it's, it's still, you know, and, and everybody's kind of freaking out. It's like six and a half percent mortgage. That's crazy. It's crazy talk. Six and a half percent. Actually, no, that's about where they should be. I mean, think about it this way. If I'm going to loan Danny money for 30 years, you know, six and a half percent is a reasonable rate for a 30 year mortgage. Right. That's that's what I would expect to generate out of economic growth and inflation over time. And that the purchasing power parity of my money is going to be the same in the future. Six and a half percent is a good mortgage rate. You know, if I'm if I'm a lender, this is a good time to be making loans. I know we hate the idea of six and a half percent sounds huge because it's been so long since we've seen that type of a mortgage rate. It really wasn't all that long ago, but it seems forever. But, you know, this is really just kind of interest rates getting back in balance to where they actually should be. Yeah. You know, one thing you can do, though, is that you you marry the home, not the not the rate. So you can always refinance if rates go yeah. down in the future. So and you have will. that flexibility and you can look at a little bit more sophisticated types of, of loans. You know, looking at arms, that is a, a way that people can do these things, especially if you're not going to be in the home forever to reduce your your rate. Now, you better pray that home prices continue to rise. That's going to be the other aspect of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. The refinancing. Part. And that, you know, I hear a lot of ads right now on the radio about taking out home equity. Home, home prices have, have increased a lot. This is the time to extract equity out of your home. No, that was three months ago. Well, not only that, though, but just, you know, just remember that you're all you're doing is just shifting your loan balance. Right. So you're just you're tapping the asset value of your home. You're taking more money out to go spend it on what? And you still got to go pay back that money at some point. It's not when you extract equity from your home. It's not free money. <laughs> it's debt that you're going to have to pay back at some point in the future. Anyway, be right back after the break. Uh, wrap up the show. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hurricane season is here. And along the Texas Gulf Coast, we know how to prepare. What we don't always know is which way the storm will go and if a hurricane does come your way, whether your house will flood. Fortunately, you can get flood insurance. 
Unfortunately, flood insurance rates have skyrocketed. Don't be at risk. Let the specialists at RIA Insurance assess your needs and shop your coverage for the best rates possible. Another service from realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the insurance tab, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me as well. So, uh, Danny, got any travel plans this summer? No, nothing far. <laughs> so, but have you made any plans? You got any plans with the kids and the wife this summer? We do. We're going to go to the beach for a couple of days, just little stuff. And, you know, I, I have neglected over the last couple of years of probably taking them on the vacation they deserve. But, uh -huh. um, you know, it's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. Brent, you got any plans this summer? Nope. Nope. So you're one of the non-planners. Staycation, baby. Staycation. Is there a reason why? Just Yeah. Can't afford to go anywhere. Uh-huh. Well, according to Statista, you're in the 40% of Americans. I feel so wonderful there about that. There you go. 40% yeah. of Americans don't have any travel plans this summer. Number one reason? This is kind of like this is kind of like family feud. Survey says <laughs> There was a great one on the other day. So, uh, Steve Harvey was asking this guy and he's like, you know, What's the one thing that you get out of, you know, that you want to get out of the most? The guy goes marriage, and <laughs> and, and he looks at the Steve Harvey looks over at his wife and says he's in trouble when he gets home. And he <laughs> oh, so survey says forty five percent of Americans say they are not have they don't have any travel plans because they couldn't afford it. So you're in the number one answer. Uh, number two answer was thirty three percent was they were trying to save money. Uh, number the number three answer twenty one percent will go at another time of the year, and uh, the, the fourth answer was want to enjoy a staycation for a change. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's that, that's 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 kind of the that's kind of the consolation for answer right there. You know, I was doing some math on this whole eighteen cent gas tax thing. Yeah. If they take eighteen cents off the price mm -hmm. of gasoline on a fill up for my car, yeah. nine gallons, I'm going to save a dollar sixty two. That's a dollar sixty-two towards us towards a vacation. Boy, howdy! <laughs> hey, you better put it in that account. <laughs> I mean, that's the rule we have. That if we do something, we could pay somebody else to do, or we have a savings. You mm -hmm. have to put it into an account. Uh huh. Or you don't really make that savings, right? You just spend it, it somewhere else. Right. Now, that's uh, that's that's one of the big fallacies of of you know we. I wrote an article about this a while back. Is that you know this is when we were talking about falling oil prices, mm -hmm. right? And then fall, falling oil prices were great because we were saving all this money at the pump and. I go, that's really a very false statement because you don't pay for gas at the pump. You know, you just stick your card in and then you go off on about your business. And so, yeah, you may pay for less at the pump, but then you turn around and you go spend it somewhere else, right? You go buy coffee with it or whatever. And, and so the problem is with savings is, is that we have these theoretical savings, but we don't actually save the money. To your point, yeah. if you have $100 a week to spend, right, and I have it in cash, and I pay, and normally it takes me $80 to fill up my car. I'm just throwing out a number. Danny costs like $800 for his truck. But, um, you know, but you know, if it takes me $80 normally and I spend $20 on food for the rest of the week, right, and I can save $10 at the pump, then I have $30 to spend. And so I wind up spending $10 at the flower shop to go buy my wife some flowers, right? Nice gesture. Keeps me out of trouble at home. But 
we don't really save the money because we just wind up spending it elsewhere in the economy. And when we talk about retail sales in particular, we measure these retail sales in dollars volume. So even though we're saving more money at the pump, the retail guy that's selling the gas, he's actually losing money. Now the flower guy where I bought the $10 worth of flowers, he's making more money. So it just shifts within the economy. There's not a change. And the same thing works in higher prices. If I'm spending more money at the, at the retail gas station as I'm doing now, I'm spending less money somewhere else. And retail sales, by the way, on a year-over-year basis have now just entered recessionary territory because of that very reason. We're also seeing the usage of oil and gas products have gone down significantly mm-hmm. from 9.4 million a day last time uh, this year, this time last year to 9.1 million. So that's a pretty significant change. And I think that you're going to see people's, you know, obviously like Brent mentioned, households are changing what they're doing. And I think that's an important aspect of this. And, you know, you've always talked about a cure for high prices is high prices. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that the savings rate has gone down. It's diminished significantly. It went from pre-pandemic about 34% down to, I think it's like 4% right now. I mean, very, very low. And so we're seeing people are having to, you know, they're using their savings just to make ends meet. They're accessing more and more credit. We've talked about how those those numbers have gone up significantly as well. And I think that's one of the bigger things we have to continue to watch for is I know you have concerns over earnings yep. and, and what happens here. We get into July. Um, you know, I think you've mentioned that we're going to see a lot of potential rebalancing here towards the end of this next, you know, this week and next as portfolio managers have to get more in line with their investment policy. We'll see some of that, which could hopefully I mean, you know, you talked about it in the first segment. We can't find any rally with with much legs here. Right. Are we going to see something like that towards the end of this this week or Who knows? next week? Well, today we've got Powell coming out. He's going to be talking about how he can potentially create a soft landing in the economy, and which is basically bring down inflation without causing a recession. The odds are heavily stacked against that's actually happening. And as we've seen lately from even the federal the Federal Reserve's own regional feds, right, the New York Fed and the Atlanta Fed. They're pretty much predicting that a recession is almost inevitable at this point. But Powell will be addressing that today. That's And obviously, that's kind of weighing on the markets this morning. Inflation continues to be a worry here, economic growth, earnings growth. And, and look, we're going to see a big earnings recession coming up over the next you know several months. In other words, earnings declining because economic growth is slowing. And if our economic, you, know, you can't maintain high earnings when economic growth is slowing because they are a function of each other, right? So... Uh, Yelling out today also, she's going to be saying that she believes there's a path to bringing down inflation while maintaining a strong labor market. Yeah, that's not going to happen either because already there's a a big problem in the labor market. And we're already starting to see that, that occur. But wages that were rising, all those wage increases that we were seeing over the last year or so because we had all this demand coming in from the economy because everybody had a check to spend. And everybody's running out to spend it. So everybody was trying to hire somebody that they had already laid off previously, trying to get them back. Everybody's job hopping, leading to wage increases. Now that demand is falling off. And now what are we seeing? Exactly what you would expect, which is the reverse. We're seeing hiring freezes, layoffs, all these type of things. And now wages are coming under pressure because, hey, if you want a job and you want to keep it, or, hey, if you want a job, you're going to get paid less for it. Well, some corporations are actually walking back offers that they've made over the last month saying, hey, guys, not right now. You're going to have to hang tight or we we don't have that position any longer. Yeah. Or you can have it, but you're going to take less. Yeah. And then that's just a fun. But again, this is just kind of where we're headed. So, again, we're we're seeing that occur. And, of course, inflation and, and the fact that wages are now under pressure, which means they're now underperforming inflation even more. And that's going to make it more complicated 
you know, for consumers to make ends meet. No, I, I think so. This weekend, it was interesting. I read, uh, we got our community impact paper. And so if you're from Texas or in Houston, you probably get one of those as well. And it had a market study of home prices, wages, and it shows over the last 15 to 20 years that you have, you have not had the wage growth keep up with home prices. Mm-hmm. And so it's pricing people out. And now you have higher rates. Um, you know, all these things are problematic, especially when in this environment that we're in. Well, and again, low interest rates led to everybody wanted to buy bigger and bigger mm-hmm. houses. And the home prices are a function of supply and demand, right? So if nobody wants to buy a $150,000 or $100,000 or a $60,000 house, uh, because again, we were talking about houses early in the show, you know, that house that my parents bought back for $11,000 back in the 60s. Yep. Inflation adjusts that. That's about an $80,000 house now. So, but it's not eighty thousand. You're probably not buying it for eighty thousand. No, I'm just saying it should be yeah. that that house should be about eighty thousand, but it's not because of low interest rates and what we've done to the mortgage market. That house is now two hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand, yeah. hundred fifty thousand somewhere in there. And so this is the 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 dark side of easy credit, low interest rates is this explosion in real estate prices that have now priced people out of the markets. And if and and here's the thing. And this is what we're talking about earlier. If you just, if the Fed would just stop messing with stuff, right? Just let economic dynamics work on their own. Supply and demand will solve the problems. Inflation will come down. Home prices will come down. People will get priced out of stuff, and they will have to lower their standard of living. And you'll fix these problems. But you know, the problem is like, oh my gosh, Lance, how can you say that people should lower their standard of living because you can't afford it? You know, the reason we have this wealth inequality in America is not because of, you know, just these evil CEOs of corporations. A large contingent of Americans live paycheck to paycheck by choice. They want to out, they they want to spend more than they make. They want to YOLO, right? You Mm -hmm. only live once, right? We got to spend it all today because we may not have it tomorrow. But then there's a group of people, the millionaire next door, that, lives below their means, they're, they, they're modest, they save money in the bank, they do what they're supposed to do, and then over time, they accrue to that level that they're saving excess cash flow, and they're better off than most. And we get upset with these people because they were willing to sacrifice to get to their position. And if you're probably listening to this financial talk show, which is boring, you're probably one of those people, right? You know, if you're if you're if you're not interested in finances and investing and building wealth, you're not listening to this show. You're probably you know out doing other stuff. Well, that's exactly right, and I think that people put you know they they make those hard choices all along the way, and especially the younger you are while you're doing this, the better it gets longer yeah. term, and that's what most people can't understand and or don't want to. So we have a failure all all along the way uh, here. I know. This is the problem I have with all of it. I'm actually writing an article now about the one chart that every millennial should ignore. And it's based on, you know, if you just put $10,000 a year in the bank every year exactly and you make 6.5%, right? Yeah. So I'm writing this article. You know, but it's the right thing, right? You should be saving, and when you're 25, $10,000 a year. You should have a savings program put together. Now, you're not going to get 6.5% a year, but... You should be saving every year, putting that to an investment account, letting it grow. But what what person at 25 years old is going to be saving 10 grand a year? They're spending everything they got, right? Because they've got to keep up their Instagram lifestyle. You could have triggered some people here, Lance. I know, but it's but it is true. Point. But it is true. Danny's going to do an upcoming candy coffee on the failures of saving. So we'll get into that. Thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome.
<laughs> All right, wraps up the show for the day. Sorry, a couple of rants today. Apologize. It's a Wednesday. <laughs> Danny, appreciate you coming in. Hey, yes, sir. All right, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and get our latest updates, podcasts, more, our uh, weekly market recap I do with Adam Taggart's on the website, our newsletter, blog posts. It's, it's all there for you. Just send your questions and comments. Let us know what we can do to help you manage your money better. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>